Welcome, everybody. You know, there is a lot of controversy surrounding the Genesis creation account, how creation deals with evolution and all these different views. I kind of talk about it a lot because one, I think it's interesting, but two, I think that there's a lot of arguing on the topic that maybe doesn't need to happen. And so uh, I presented some thoughts that I had trying to clarify kind of my position as well as kind of wanting to put my position out there to say, hey, does someone have counter arguments? Can someone offer explanations of what I think makes sense and kind of have a good, faithful dialogue, fruitful dialogue on the topic? And so that's why a few weeks back, I had Apollo Jedi come on the show. Uh, he is a young earth creationist and he pushed back against my points and I kind of pushed back against his points. I thought that we had a good conversation. I thought it was done well. I thought we respected each other in the conversation. We, you know, we pushed back, we disagreed. We kind of had a little argument, so to speak, but we were not necessarily arguing and I thought it was done well. And that's kind of what I want to present. Now, um, a, another video was made following up on that. Uh, it was made by In His Image. That's the name of the YouTube channel. And uh, kind of looking at some of my points and looking at my conversation with Apollo Jedi and so um, and kind of critiquing it, offering some more counter arguments and some more thoughts. And so uh, I responded to In His Image and I sent him a personal message before he went live with that video and because he had joined in the previous conversation. So I'm, right now I'm just kind of setting up what's happening today if I didn't tell you that. So anyways, I sent him a private message because he showed up. He showed up in the conversation I had with Apollo Jedi and he was offering some thoughts on that. And so I sent him a message just saying, Hey, what are your views on this? Can you help explain what you mean by the different things that you said in your uh, comments and wanting to kind of understand his views a little bit more. Now he ended up making about a 21 minute video, uh, responding to my comments. And, uh, and so, um, he wanted some thoughts on it. And so I figured, Hey, he's going to make a video kind of for his audience to respond to my comments and try to help train people rather than just one-on-one. -on -one. I wanted to make a video as well to kind of help you guys think through this as well. And so this conversation today, I'm going to be showing you clips from his video. Um, I also um, mentioned to him that uh, I would be doing this. I invited him to come join me. He said he would be, I think, busy this afternoon, but he would see if he could make some time. So he might join here in a little bit. Uh, we'll see if he comes. But anyways, uh, that is today. We're going to be talking through kind of his points, his arguments against my position, me kind of thinking through that and trying to help frame this in a fruitful conversation that we as Christians should be able to have on something that is often very divisive, uh, often on something that can get very heated when talking about what do the words, what does the word yom, days, in Genesis chapter 1 mean? Is it young earth creationism? Is it old earth creationism? And overall, taking a step back and how to interpret the Bible. And so that is the goal of today's show. My name is Ryan Pauly. This is a weekly show where I try to help you understand what Christians believe and know how to defend it and then be able to faithfully live it out. Now, if you uh, are following my updates, unfortunately, I did not be, I was not able to have my conversation with Derek Brover on high school Bible curriculum. You know, I, as I mentioned before, I get a lot of questions from uh, teachers who are starting off to teach high school Bible classes and just saying, hey, where do I start? What do I do? How do I build a curriculum for my school? And so I thought, hey, why not get my colleague, Derek Brover, to join me and just answer a lot of questions on high school Bible curriculum. Unfortunately, that conversation has to be rescheduled, so it's not happening this week. So as I began to think through, like, hey, what should I do this week? Uh, the video from In His Image popped up and I you know, thought, hey, why not kind of talk through his points and try to hopefully show how to have a faithful dialogue on that. So if you're interested in that um, conversation on high school Bible curriculum, Bible classes, what do we do? Um, that interview should be coming up soon. Also, uh, this book just came in the mail today. 
Do Christla do Muslims Christlams? I don't know what that is. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God by Andy Bannister? This is next week. Now we did have to bump it back. There was a conflict, but it is Thursday. Let me make sure I get this right. Thursday morning, July 22nd, I believe at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. He is in the UK, so I think 8 a.m. My time is like 4 p.m. his time, and so that is gonna be uh, the conversation next week as well as the final end of the month Q&A on the 30th. So those are the last two things to look forward to this month. I'm already getting some questions on social media. And so if you want to connect, send in your questions for that end of the month Q&A that's coming up. Uh, if you're listening after the fact, if you're listening on podcast or KGBA, then you can uh, definitely send those in through social media. Uh, but if you're also on YouTube, you can send those in, follow on social media, send those in and uh, get your questions in or join live for that conversation uh, the last week of uh, July. So anyways, the summer is flying by. So our conversation today, let me kind of start it off and kind of give you a preface. Thank you so much for being here, by the way, Summer, and thank you so much for putting those times up. I didn't clarify uh, what time zone I was talking about I would do this at. And Eddie, thank you for being here as well. I kind of thought of a uh, an illustration. I don't remember where I first heard this or if I was kind of reading it and I was thinking about it, but I, I, I was thinking through the claim that I often hear from young earth creationists that we cannot use science to interpret scripture. Now in, in the video, by in his image, uh, he makes a similar claim and we'll get there in a little bit. But I started kind of thinking through what are some aspects of scripture that we do use science to get a better understanding of. And for that, I thought of the example where I was reading in the book of Joshua and I saw the example and I, and I kind of thought of this or I read it. I can't remember exactly where the idea came from. So let me kind of work through here really quick. What was my kind of initial comments in my conversation with Apologetai and what I was kind of hoping to get and what I was trying to hopefully show in that conversation that was maybe limited because of our conversation and, and what my point was on this issue. So in uh, Joshua chapter 10, there is a story and I have another, I covered this, I think in also in a, uh, in a Q and a uh, somewhere, but anyways, Joshua chapter 10 says that the, at that time in verse 12, right here, um, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites, Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ihalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to step for about a whole day. There have been, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Okay, so <clears throat> the question often comes here, right? Is this kind of objection against Christianity of, well, what are you going to do with Joshua 10? How do you understand what happened here? The most common understanding, and this is, I think, what initially kind of started my thinking on this, is this objection was brought up to me now that I read it. Um, and it's, well, the most common understanding is that a miracle was performed, that God stopped the sun in the sky because Joshua asked for it to happen. God made it happen. And so this is a supernatural miracle. Now, again, there are other interpretations. There are other ways in which people explain this. Some try to explain it by a solar eclipse. Some try to explain it by poetic imagery. Others try to explain it that, no, it's just that the heat was dis diminished. It, it didn't actually um, stop in the sky. Maybe it was just a reflection of the light that made it look like the sun lingered a little bit longer. Um, you know, there's a lot of different explanations, but I would say maybe the most 
most common explanation of Joshua chapter 10 is that God did a miracle, that he stopped the sun in the sky. Now, why do I bring this up? I think there's two reasons or two ways in which this is important. The first of all, uh, as we'll get to here in a little bit when I start showing the video, is this is not making uh, any prediction on scientific matters like heliocentrism or geocentrism. Joshua did not have that in mind. He's not making that point. I'm not saying that he's making that point. The question is this, if we read this and we say, well, this is phenomenological language. My question is, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to the conclusion? Because what you often hear is that if we take a straightforward reading of the text, this is what I sometimes hear or often hear from the young earth crowd. Not everyone makes this claim, but you hear it. Um, if you take the straightforward reading of the text, it says that the sun stopped. Joshua asked for the sun to stop. And then it says the Lord made the sun stop. There's never been a day like it before. The sun stopped in the midst of the sky for a whole day. So we recognize though, and we go, well, the sun didn't actually stop. Well, but that's what the scripture says. If you are going to claim that this is phenomenal link, phenomenological language, the sun didn't actually stop. It was actually the earth that stopped rotating. That was the miracle. The earth stopped rotating. Therefore, the sun appeared to stop in the sky. My question is, how do you get that interpretation from just simply reading scripture from the plain reading of the text? I don't think you can get that. The scripture says the plain reading of the text, the sun stopped in the sky. Now, I don't think this is a big deal because we, we read this and we use our scientific understanding that the earth rotates around the sun, that the earth is rotating. That's what makes the sun appear to be moving in the sky. And so we read into this and we say, yeah, this doesn't mean the sun literally stopped. It's that the earth stopped rotating to where the sun looked like it stopped. That in no way compromises the authority of scripture. Again, the reason why I brought this example up in the initial conversation is that you sometimes hear that to use scientific understanding to help clarify or, or interpret scripture is to diminish the authority of scripture and to say that scripture is not sufficient. I don't think that's the case. There are things that God has revealed to us in nature that we can use to have a better clarification of what is happening in scripture, and that in no way removes from the authority of scripture. And so I think that we can take this approach in interpretation where we take all of God's revelation to us and we can use the different aspects of God, God's revelation to help gain a better understanding of what God was saying without compromising the authority of scripture. But if we are going to say, I believe God's word, oh, oh I just came in. Um, <laughs> I only believe what God says. We should never use science to, uh, to, to influence our interpretation. Well, then if we take a strict meaning of that, we should believe that the earth is the center of the solar system. It says right here, the sun stopped in the sky. It's the sun that's moving around us and it stopped. Like if we want to take a hard science, if we want to make this into some sort of scientific conclusion, which I don't think very many people do, but we say, look, you, scripture is always correct. Science is our best guess. Science could be mistaken. Well, scripture says the sun stopped. Therefore, it's the sun that's moving, not us. So even though all of science shows that the earth is rotating around the sun and the earth is rotating to create 24-hour days, that's not the case. It's actually the sun that's moving because that's what Joshua 10 says. Instead, we read this, recognize that it's phenomenological language and that it is actually uh, the earth that's rotating that possibly stopped. That's the miracle. 
which gives the appearance like the sun stopped. Now, this might seem like a kind of a weird point to make, but I think it is important because it points to the fact that we can use, I think, science to gain a better understanding of what scripture says, and that in no way diminishes the authority of scripture. Now, I use this, and I'm not saying because Joshua 10 says this, therefore we apply that back to Genesis 1. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is a method of interpretation. How do we interpret Joshua chapter 10? Now, we can know what Joshua 10 says without understanding science, but we have a more complete picture. We have a more robust view of what was taking place with that scientific understanding. And so my question is, if we can do this in Joshua 10, is it possible that we can also do this in Genesis 1 without undermining the authority of Scripture? So that was my kind of initial argument that I was making uh, from Joshua chapter 10 um, and kind of what I was kind of suggesting. Uh, this is just a, simply a method of interpretation. How do we use or how can science or how can our observation inform or maybe de deepen our understanding and knowledge of what is happening in Scripture? The goal is to find out what the text means at a deeper level. I am not saying, please hear me, I'm not saying that science is kind of the end-all, be-all of knowledge. Science gives us this ultimate, authoritative, absolute truth and could never be wrong. I, I don't believe that. I don't. Like, we could be wrong in our scientific understanding of things. Scientific understandings change over time. So I'm not saying that. Science could be wrong. I also don't put my faith in this. Like, my faith is not in, did the sun stop or the earth stopped? I was having a conversation with a buddy about this the other day, and it was kind of the thing, like, let's say, for example, that tomorrow we have some crazy scientific breakthrough that actually shows no the earth is the center of the solar system. The sun is going around the earth. Well, would that shake my faith? No, not at all. My faith is not in heliocentrism or geocentrism. My faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. So I have understanding of this. I have beliefs about things. I would say that, yeah, the, the sun is the center. Uh, but if we somehow realize that we're wrong on that, uh, it's not shaking my faith because my faith is not in that scientific knowledge. Um, but we can also, I think we can read and understand the text without science. Absolutely. People 500 years ago that didn't have this understanding of the scientific understanding that we have today could read and understand the text because we say the same thing. The sun rises, the sun sets. Um, and so what we see here is they can't understand it. However, as we learn more about God's creation, as we learn more about God's revelation, I think, as I mentioned, it gives us a deeper understanding of the text. I think it's the same thing as we grow in our faith. A small child can read the scripture and understand the important aspects of scripture. They can read scripture and understand what the words are saying. But as they grow in their knowledge, as they grow in their theology, as they grow in their knowledge of God and their knowledge of the world, the depth of understanding of scripture grows. And so I absolutely would agree that we can read and understand the text without the scientific knowledge. However, I do think that the scientific knowledge can clarify or possibly tell us the how something happened behind the what it happened. And I think that's where I would then apply this kind of to Genesis chapter one. You can read Genesis one without science, understand that God created. But I think there's a maybe a depth of knowledge that when we give all of God's revelation together that we can grasp. Sure, could I be wrong on something? Of course. But that's kind of where I'm taking this. So what I want to do is jump into uh, then the video and, and look at kind of the counter arguments that In His Image brought up. Um, 
kind of look through what he was saying and kind of offer my thoughts on it that he wanted. And so uh, I hope that, um, again, my goal in this, I'm not trying to critique him. I'm trying to show how to have a faithful, fruitful conversation on this topic. Uh, I reached out to him privately to try to have this conversation. I presented some thoughts to try to get some responses from him. Um, he posted the video to respond. And so I'm going to share my video. And he said, yeah, go for it. Again, he might join. We'll see. But anyways, uh, here is uh, the beginning and some of the main parts that he brought up. Now, keep in mind, Joshua did not know that the Earth orbited the Sun. He didn't know that. That wasn't something we knew at the time. Okay? So Joshua is speaking with the knowledge he has. And he says for the Sun to stand still. Now, God obviously knows what he means, and so the Earth stands still. Okay, so here's kind of the first part, and I want to agree with him. Joshua did not know that the Earth orbited the Sun. Joshua is speaking with the knowledge that he has. Absolutely. Joshua doesn't have the scientific understanding. He just sees the sky, the sun moving the sky. And the same thing, even with our current knowledge today, we know that the sun is not rising and setting, but we still call it a sunrise and sunset. We, we use the language of observation. And so Joshua didn't know this, but he says, you know, God obviously knew what Joshua meant. So he didn't say in the earth stood still, cause that would be kind of confusing. And so God knew what Joshua meant. And so God could still fulfill the miracle uh, done. Um, God absolutely did know what Joshua meant. Um, the question, though, again, my kind of pushback and in, in why I am bringing this point up is the text is clear. The sun stopped moving in the sky. That's what it says. So why do, if we just want to take the plain reading of the text, why do we accept a heliocentric view that the sun is the center? If scripture is a higher authority than science, scripture says here in a historical text, not poetic, in a historical text, the sun stopped moving then why do we think, actually, no, actually the sun has been still pretty much, and it's the earth that's moving. Why do we take a scientific understanding rather than this? And so that's kind of the first point of why do we accept a heliocentric view, which is what science claims, when scripture seems to point out here that geocentrism is what is true. All right, let's jump back into what he uh, continues on with. There's a couple of good answers to this, actually. I, I had to think about it a little bit because it was a good question. It's one of the few, not to be rude, but it's one of the few good questions I think I've seen from an old Earth advocate. Most of them have already been answered and they just don't like the answers. This part is unfortunate, and I'm going to be a little bit critiquing the approach. This part's a little bit unfortunate. To say, this is one of the few good questions I've seen with the old Earther. Most questions have been answered. They don't like the answers. And saying, well, I don't mean to be rude, but so then don't be rude. <laughs> to say, I don't mean to be rude, but then say a rude thing. This is a backhanded compliment. This is one of the few good questions from a old earther. Why not just say, hey, this is a good question from an old earther. If someone brings up a good question. So I'm trying to help try to frame how to have a conversation on this and hopefully a better conversation if you're having a conversation with someone. If someone makes a good point, the compliment is, hey, that's a really good point. That's a good question. The backhanded rude compliment is that, wow, that's like the only good point you've made all day. You're, you're, you're praising them on the point that they made, but you, you're also, you're criticizing them. You're, you're, you're kind of mocking them like, that all the rest of their points were garbage. I don't know why this is necessary. Just say, hey, this was a good point and address the point rather than having to say, I don't mean to be rude, but this is one of the few good questions I've seen from an old earther. I just think that was an inappropriate kind of comment that kind of starts off the video in a weird way. Now, he says, um, let's see, let me find it here. Um, 
most questions from old earth advocates have been answered, but they don't like the answers. That's true. And I could say but something similar about young earthers. Most young earthers, most old earths have answered the questions asked by young earthers, but they don't like the answers. This is what happens in any time we have a disagreement on a theological issue. Like if we try to present this idea, like I have these objections that have never, ever been answered, then I think we're kind of ignorant of the other side. When we learn the other side of an issue, when we study deeply the other side of a position, we learn that that side has answers. Now, often you don't accept the other side because you think those answers aren't sufficient. You think those answers aren't as compelling as the issues that are raised. I think of like a criminal trial in court. You have a defense attorney and you have the prosecuting attorney. Each one is going to have a response to whatever the other one says. It's not like, it's like, oh, I have no response at all. Oh my goodness. Each one responds, but still one of the attorneys is more convincing to the jury, to what has actually happened. That's how we're able to make a ruling on something. And so this, you know, I, I won't say a whole lot more about this. It just seems weird to be like, well, old earthers don't like the answers. Well, yeah, right. I, I just don't find the answers as compelling as some of the points that I think are more compelling. You may find those more compelling. And like that's where we have a conversation on this issue. Um, but that's where hopefully we recognize like, look, you have good answers to my questions. I just don't think they're as compelling. And I have some good answers to your questions and you just don't think they're compelling. But there's good answers on both sides. And again, I think this lifts up someone who holds to a different view. All right, this is similar to the conversation I had with Tim Yulhoff on how to have better conversations without dividing the church. And he talked about this idea, and I'll get here in a little bit, about that there are some really, really smart Christians that he disagrees with on theological issues. And to act like these people are like ignorant or dumb, like, no, they're really smart. Why would they hold to something if they're really, really, really smart? There's got to be some reason. And let's try to understand their reasons and give them some credit for having some good reasons. So let's kind of jump into some of the reasons that he mentions here. Um, so to, to answer the question here, what could we have known from that verse that the, the earth orbited the sun? No, but that's not the point. Joshua made a statement. He said, sun stands still. Now, if the, if the passage had then gone on and said, and the earth stood still and the moon... And the earth stood still until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. It would have sounded like God did not grant Joshua's request. Yeah, wouldn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. It would have sounded different. Now, we would have understood it in the 21st century because we know that the earth orbits the sun rather than the other way around. But to the people that were being written to, they wouldn't have understood that. So I have no problem here with God saying essentially, hey, because Joshua said it this way, that's how we're going to record it. All right. Um, I think this is a fantastic point. I, and I couldn't agree anymore. I think he is right. This is not difficult to understand. Um, and I have no problem with it either. Joshua, based on his knowledge, is asking for the sun to stand still. That's what it appears like is happening to him. God understands that. God responds, okay, I'll make the sun stand still. It would have been very confusing if God's like, well, you know, unless he wants to go into like a... A scientific, you know, give Joshua a science lesson. Like, well, actually, okay, Joshua. So you think that the sun revolves around the earth. Actually, it's the opposite. It's all this language of, no, God's not giving a science lesson. Joshua asks the sun to stand still. Um, 
we would have understood it if God responded and said, yeah, now the earth is going to stand still. Uh, Joshua wouldn't have. And so I have no problem, as in his image mentions, uh, the same thing. I have no problem with God recording it the way that he did. That's what Joshua said. It's not difficult. Uh, and so I think this is a really good point to where uh, this shouldn't create a problem for us to say, look, Joshua asked for it. God answered that re request. Now, how exactly did God go about fulfilling that answer? I think it's because I think it's by stopping the earth, right? That's the miraculous possibility there that God stopped the earth. But it would have been confusing to say that to Joshua. So God just responds in a way that Joshua understands. Absolutely. No problem with that whatsoever. I think that is a wonderful point. All right, let's continue. Now, keep in mind, Joshua did not know that the earth orbited the sun. He didn't know that. That wasn't something we knew at the time. Okay? So Joshua is speaking with the knowledge he has. I just restarted the whole video. Where were we? No. But that's not the point. Sorry, everybody. Joshua made a statement. He said, Sun stands. If the passage had then gone, Earth stood, have sounded different. Now, we would have understood it in the 21st century. Understood that. Hey, because Joshua said it this way, that's how we're going to record it. All right. I restarted rather than resuming. Here we go. Joshua specifically said, Sun stands down. Again, Joshua thought that the sun didn't move. The, 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 the sun moved and the Earth didn't. Right? So, as the sun, as the sun moved, or didn't move, in the real case, but in Joshua's mind it did, so he told the sun to stand still and asked God to have the sun stand still. Okay, so here's, again, why I'm kind of using this as an example. So here in this context, in his image, responds and says, um, well, Joshua asked the sun to move, uh, and the sun moved. And then he goes, well, actually, well, the sun didn't actually move, it just, Joshua thought it did. And that's my question is, well, the scripture says the sun didn't move. So why are we saying, well, it didn't actually? Why are we changing scripture there and saying, well, the sun didn't actually stop moving when the passage says it stopped moving? See, I think, and here's where I want to say, like, that's kind of one of the points I have in this. And there's a few applications that I've tried to mention. But one of the points is that we have a strong scientific understanding that the sun is the center, the sun is not moving, the earth is going around the sun. And so we read into that and we say, well, okay, Joshua thought it was stopping, but it clearly it wasn't. But that in no way undermines the authority of scripture. And so in his image just here says, well, the sun stopped moving. Well, it didn't actually move, but that's what in Joshua's mind it did. And so my response from kind of that young earth view would say, okay, if we're going to say that the sun didn't actually stop moving, where do you get that from the text? If scripture is the highest authority and we should never use science to interpret scripture, where do you get that in the text that the sun didn't actually stop moving? Now, I don't think it's a problem to use the scientific understanding we have to clarify what the text is saying, because I think that we can take both of those approaches. But for some young earthers, as in his image is going to say here in a little bit towards the end of the video, that we should never use scripture, science to interpret scripture. If we do, we're saying scripture is not sufficient or scripture is no longer the greatest authority. Then my question back would be, OK, then why, how do you know the sun didn't actually stop moving um, in the sky? We would have to say, no, it sure looks like scripture says it stopped. And so it sure looks like it stopped again. It might seem like I'm kind of beating a dead horse, uh, but again, he, he, there's a lot of points that he's kind of making that I think is kind of clarifying why I use Joshua 10 to have a interpretive framework that then I'm going to go back and apply into Genesis chapter one. 
Um, all right, let's continue on. Joshua 10 is not trying to give us an account of origins. Joshua 10 is not trying to give us an account of astronomy. Joshua 10 is not trying to give us an account of the heliocentric or geocentric views of the universe. It's not trying to do any of those things. Joshua 10 is telling us a historical event that happened. Okay, again here, I just want to say this was a, a good point. Joshua 10 is not uh, trying to uh, give us an understanding. Um, what is that? Oh, oh, that's my thing. Huh, that's funny. Um, Joshua 10 is not trying to give us an understanding of origins or astronomy or heliocentric, geocentric. He's not. Um, it, is a, it is giving us a, a historical account of what happened. Um, and so I just want to say, yes, I fully agree with his uh, application and his, his point there as well. I think that's a good point. And I will also point out, too, that the Bible uses phenomenological, phenomenological language frequently. Okay, so here is my question then, back, is if we don't use science... If we don't allow science to inform our interpretation at all, how do we know the Bible is using phenomenological language? Like that's, that's where my pushback is. The only way we know it's phenomenological language is because we're comparing what it says versus what we know to be true, or we're comparing what something looks like to compare to what we know to be true. And so um, I would, I 100% agree. And this was my conclusion in the original conversation with Apologetai is yes, the Bible is using phenomenological language. It's language based on observation, what Joshua is observing. The question is, how did you come to that conclusion? Or how could you come to that conclusion? And if there's an answer, um, you guys can make it up uh, or, or put it, not make it up, but put it in the live chat. Um, but I saw the comment about my beard being crazy. It is, my goodness. Uh, and it made me lose my train of thought. Okay, so um, if there's a response to this, I'd, I would love to hear. I'm not saying there's no response. I just don't know what it would be. Is how can we come to the conclusion that scripture here is, is phenomenological language without using our scientific understanding, saying that's not actually the way it happens? Because it says this is what happened. Why don't we just believe it? Why don't we just believe that's what happened and therefore say our scientific understanding of heliocentrism is false? The earth is actually the center. So we have good reason to believe the scientific understanding is true, and therefore we recognize this to be phenomenological language. Again, I think this is the point I was trying to make, is if we're going to say it is phenomenological language, how do we get to that conclusion only using scripture as our authority and not in inputting any observational or scientific knowledge into the equation? I don't know how you get there. But, again... To input the scientific understanding we have and say this is phenomenal language, phenomenological language, doesn't undermine the authority of scripture at all. And I don't see why that is a problem. Okay, so now at this point in the conversation, uh, that, that was my main point. So I, I think he kind of, if I can say maybe missed my main point of why I was bringing this up a little bit, uh, because his, his answers to it were, well, this is phenomenological language. This is what based on what Joshua saw. And so it's not a problem. And I want to say, well, yeah, I agree with that. The problem or the point I'm addressing is the interpretation and how we use information outside of scripture to better understand and interpret scripture uh, in this passage. And it doesn't create a problem. 
why is it that when we do the same thing in Genesis chapter one and we use information outside of scripture to help better understand Genesis one, that it does create a problem? That was my main point. Uh, and I don't know if it was kind of fully addressed. So in his image, if you have kind of a response to that, maybe I clarified my point a little bit more to help better understand uh, what I was trying to say there. I think you made a lot of great points, but I think I was maybe slightly different. So here's where uh, in the video he switches to now applying this to Genesis chapter one. So we're going to now take this interpretive framework and now we're going to look at the days of Genesis one to try to see, are they long periods of time? Are they 24 hours? How do we understand the word day in Genesis chapter one? Here we go. Now I'm sure Ryan Pauly's already aware of this and I'm sure most old earthers are already aware of this, but did you realize that every single time in the old Testament that the Hebrew word yom is used with a number, it means a single literal 24 hour day? Or was Jonah in the belly of the great fish 3,000 years? Did they march around Jericho for seven centuries? No, they didn't, did they? Those are normal 24-hour days. But when you take it to Genesis, for some reason, we don't understand what the, what, what the word means in its context. Okay, uh, I have quite a bit here to say on this claim here that every time Yom is used uh, with a number, it means a 24-hour day throughout the old whole entire Old Testament. Now, it's also hard, like this claim of like, well, if you're going to say it means a long period of time, was Jonah in the belly of the whale for 3,000 years? Or did Joshua, you know, did they move around the walls of Jericho for 7,000 years? Well, clearly not. We're talking about a different context. And so we have to understand what does this word best mean in that context? And so we don't apply all definitions of a word to every single context that that word is used in. That would be absurd. And, and in his image even pointed that out here that we have to understand it in its proper context. Jonah in the belly of the fish, uh, the Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho in Genesis chapter one, those are three different contexts that we have to understand the word. And so we're not applying it equally to all of those different passages. Now, um, is it true that the word yom, when applied with a number in the Old Testament, always means a literal 24 hour day? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, I think there's a few illustrations that we can bring up here. The first point, I think, or not a few illustrations, but a few points uh, that I want to address uh, here. The first one is this. Um, the Hebrew language does not require a 24-hour interpretation when a number is attached to the word yom. It's not required. Now, uh, Norman Geisler points this up in one of his books, um, the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, where he says, numbered days need not be solar. Neither is there a rule of the Hebrew language demanding that all numbered days in a series refer to 24 hour days. Even if there were no, ex ex um, sorry, even if there were no exceptions in the Old Testament, it still would not mean that the word day in Genesis one would not refer to more than one 24-hour period. But there is an example of the Old Testament, Hosea 6, 1 to 12. Clearly, the prophet is not speaking of solar days, but of longer periods in the future. Yet the number, the, the, yet the numbers, the, sorry, yet he numbers the days in the series. So I think one important point here, and I, and I don't know if this is going to be a good illustration or a good analogy of this, but there is no requirement in the Hebrew language where if there's a number and then the word yom, you have to mean that to be 24-hour days. And even if there were no exceptions, which I think there are a couple that I'll address, even if there are no exceptions, it doesn't mean it has to be that way. So think of it, uh, and again, this might be a bad example, but to try to get the illustration or the point across, is say you go to a culture where they don't have baseball, and the only word they have for bat is the flying animal. And so every single possible way in which they use the word bat is going to mean a flying animal. 
Now, someone shows up with a baseball bat and say, hey, here's a bat. You would not say, well, hold on. Every single, like the man is holding a bat, right? That's the sentence. Well, every single other uh, definition or explanation of the word bat is a flying animal. Therefore, this one also has to be a flying animal. No, you can have an exception to that rule. It doesn't have to be a flying animal. It can mean something else, even if everything else uh, does point to that other interpretation or the other definition. And I think this is similar kind of case here is even if there were no other exceptions, it doesn't mean it has to be interpreted that way, if that makes sense. Um, now, I do think that there are some other possible interpretations. So for example, I think in Genesis, the day seven is a different example. Genesis chapter two, uh, which is the seventh day of creation. Now notice this in Genesis chapter two. And the seventh day, God finishes work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. So there's the number and the word yom right there, the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, if we look at some passages, for example, like in Psalm 95, Psalm 95 talks about God resting from his creation and talking about people that he has wrath against and who will not be able to enter his rest. Now, Hebrews chapter four kind of adds on to this, starting in verse one, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news has come to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. For he who have believed enter the rest, as he said, and this is the end of Psalm 95, quoted in Hebrews 3 or Hebrews 4, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works of his were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, the passage said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards in the words they already quoted today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. For Joshua said, I'm given rest. God would not have spoken for another day on. So this continues on. Um, so it says, well, there, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from the works God has, or God did from his. So I think that it's very possible based on Psalm 95, based on Hebrews chapter four, when you look at Genesis chapter two, a very possible interpretation of this passage where it says the seventh day, the seventh day has continued. The seventh day has not stopped. So here is a word where you have Yom and then seventh, and the seventh day has continued. God is still at rest. God is still resting, and we are able to enter into his rest for those that believe. Now, there is a young earth uh, response to this interpretation. Uh, Answers in Genesis has a, an article that says, is the seventh day eternal? And they give four reasons why the seventh day is not eternal. Reason number one, they say, is that God's present rest does not logically imply a long seventh day. I think I would agree with that. Just because God is still at rest does not logically mean the seventh day is longer or eternal or still happening. But even if there's no logically, like it has to be eternal, that you can still understand that from the reading of the text. God rested. Scripture says that God is still at rest. So that seventh day of him resting is still happening. I think is, is very possible, even though maybe not logically. 
Um, now, Answers in Genesis makes another point. It says, um, it makes no sense of Exodus 20, 9 to 11. Now, this is another common passage that is often talked about by young earth creationists, that um, how do we understand if the Genesis account is not six or seven 24-hour days, how do we understand Exodus 20 that says, six days you shall labor, labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath, of the Lord your God, you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. And I would say that we can easily understand this because, again, it's a different context, right? We can see a pattern in which God did something, six days working, six periods of time working, and one period of time resting, and we can adopt that, that same pattern. And so even, so we could take the seventh day, God resting, and God staying in his rest, and then apply that to humans and say, no, on that seventh day, you also rest. Now, answers in Genesis in this article, and I didn't link this in the description below. I'll add this. I'll add all the resources that I'm quoting here. Uh, it says, the six days of creation and rest uh, and day of rest on, uh, are actually the same as those in the command to work six ordinary days and rest the seventh. The passage is clearly not teaching an eternal weekend. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Having an eternal weekend. Uh, Monday would never have to come around. Of course not. The passage is not teaching an eternal weekend. We're taking, like, the way in which God does something or performs something does not perfectly equate to the way we do it, but God is still establishing patterns that can apply to us. Of course, the way in which God has knowledge doesn't perfectly apply to our knowledge. And there's ways in which God is transcendent and beyond us and far greater than us. But it's still, he has things that have applied to us and can teach us and give us a pattern for how we do things as well. So I don't think that understanding day seven, which is the seventh day, and applying that to saying it's eternal based on Hebrews 4 and Psalm 95 would create any problem with Exodus 20, 9 to 11. Now, the fourth point that Answers in Genesis makes in responding to this idea that the, uh, the seventh day is not necessarily eternal, he sa it says, point number four, most importantly, it contradicts the plain reading of Scripture. An interpretation of Scripture which contradicts other statements of Scripture must be wrong. And I would agree. If we have something clear in scripture, any interpretation that must that contradicts it must be wrong. Now, notice the first point that, they, that is claimed that it contradicts. The first point is the Hebrew word yom, day, always refers to an ordinary day when associated with a number or words evening and morning. That's the very thing, though, that I'm, that's being challenged. Is here is an example in scripture where yom is used with a number that doesn't mean an ordinary day. So to dismiss this as an example, say, well, but it never means that. But I'm saying it does here. And so to say, well, you have to hold this truth. Yom always is an ordinary day. That is the truth of scripture. Now, any interpretation that contradicts that is therefore wrong. Well, that's the very thing that I'm challenging or that others are challenging as well, that Yom with a number doesn't necessarily mean an ordinary day. And here's an example, Genesis chapter two in day seven. Now, as Norman Geisler pointed out, uh, there are some other passages as well. We can look at, for example, uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Let us come, return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck, down, struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now, many scholars will talk about here that this is not a literal 24-hour day period. This is a period of time into the future, looking off into the future, that is giving this understanding. But it still says day two or the second day, and in two days and the third day. Uh, we also see in Zechariah 14, verse 7. 
on that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day. The, the Hebrew there says one day, which the Lord to know, neither day nor night, but, but at evening time there shall be light. And so here are just two other quick passages that uh, seem to suggest that there is the word day associated with a number, but it's somehow unique. It's different. There's no light. There's no morning. There's no evening. And so to suggest, well, no, that still is 24 hours, but it just doesn't have any evening or morning or light. Well, that's not what the text says. There is a unique day. It's not like the others. There's no evening, morning. The light just continues. And it says a day, one day. And so there's the number associated with Yom. So uh, I would push back a little bit on this uh, point here that says every single time Yom is used with a number, it means a 24-hour day. Again, I think that um, there are uh, examples uh, that old earthers present. I know that there are responses that a young earther will have to this. I can't go through every single one in the time that we have. We're already getting very close to running out of time. The whole point is, is to just kind of ignore that information and say, well, it just never is the case. Well, there are some really, really smart theologians who say it is the case that these are examples in which Yom is used with a number and it doesn't mean 24 hours. We can't just dismiss that or ignore it and just say, no, it's not there. It sure seems to be there. Now, again, there's this issue with evening and morning, that evening and morning also require a 24-hour day. And that does create an issue with the first three days of Genesis in the sense that there was no sun. And so if an evening and morning, sunrise and sunset, is the earth rotating and going around the sun to create the sunrise and sunset, to create the morning and evening, what is creating the evening and morning in that sense? And so I think, uh, you know, the, 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 there must be some sort of different meaning. You don't actually have that evening, morning, sunrise, sunset, the first three days, because there's no sun. Different kind of light, but um, at least there, if we take it literally, it seems to be a little bit different. Um, okay, so uh, I think that's an important point there, uh, kind of addressing that main kind of critique of his on this understanding of the context of Genesis 1 has numbers attached to the day. It always means 24 hours. I don't think that's necessarily the case. This could be the case. Other times it is, right? They march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, but the context actually does look like seven 24-hour days. This one has numbers, but maybe it's not the case. All right, let's continue on with the next kind of point that he makes here. What Pauli argued was that <clears throat> because that was a long period, because that was a period of time longer than a, than a single day, that the rest of the days in Genesis must be periods longer than a single day. And I respectfully respectfully would like to point out that that ignores the context of those verses. Okay, so here's where I, I got a little bit upset. And there's another thing coming up that I got upset about. And so if you go to his video on his page, uh, you can see my comment. I was a little bit upset uh, trying to address this. Because he says, here's what Polly argued. I never argued this. This is a misunderstanding of my point. I did not make this argument. Now, I point to Genesis chapter 2. This is my argument. This is what I say. I point to Genesis chapter 2, and it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. That word day, in his image even, recognizes this could be a longer period of time because it is a summation verse summarizing what happened in all of Genesis chapter 1. Now, my point here is simply to say the word yom doesn't have to only mean 24 hours. Because here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the word yom, day, is used to refer to the period of time in which God created. 
So even within the context, even within the first two chapters of Genesis, we see at least three different definitions of the word yom. We see in Genesis chapter one at the very beginning that there is light. God saw that was good. He separated. He called the light day. So this is the daylight time. This is a 12 hour time. Now you can say that the rest of the days uh, of Genesis are 24 hours, if you want to say that. And then Genesis chapter two, verse four, you have day meaning a period of time. This is a literal definition. This is not importing anything unique into the text, but this is a literal possible definition. So just like with my example of the bat, you can translate the word bat as the flying creature, or you can translate the word bat as the thing the baseball players swing and hit the ball with. Those are both possible interpretations. And so you're not creating problems by saying, well, I think bat means flying animal. That's a real possible literal interpretation. You're not making it figurative. You're not changing it. That's my point. I never said that because it means a long period of time in chapter two, verse four, that it does have to also mean a longer period of time in chapters in chapter one and the different instances it's used in chapter one. I never made this argument. Um, I'm saying that it could be longer. And so that is a possible interpretation for the word day in Genesis chapter one. It doesn't have to be longer, but at least it's a possible real interpretation. Now, there's two reasons why I think it could be longer in Genesis uh, chapter one. Uh, the first point here, if I can pull this up here really quick. Let me see this. All right. Um, the first one. Uh, in the text, what is it within the text? Does the text suggest something longer than 24 hours? It seems to be in a couple different place, places. Number one is what happens here on the third day. It says, let the earth sprout vegetations and plant yielding seeds, the fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind in the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kind, trees bearing fruit. Now, based on our understanding of how plants grow, that, that would take longer than 24 hours. Now, is it possible that God did a miracle here and sprouted up the plants instantly? Absolutely. 100%. But by importing a miracle here, you are suggesting that, well, the plain reading of the text wouldn't make sense. You would need a miraculous growth. You would need miracle grow on these plants to get them out of the ground within that 24-hour period. Very possible. Could have happened. But notice that by suggesting, well, God used a miracle to make them grow fast, you're saying that because the plain reading of the text, plants take more than 24 hours to sprout out of the ground, to be brought forth vegetation, to yield their own seed according to their kind, for the trees to bear fruit, which is in their seed, this would, just on a normal timescale, take longer than 24 hours. And so I think a plain reading of the text, Genesis day three, would suggest something longer than 24 hours. Now, obviously, could God have done it quicker? Absolutely. But it's possible that it's longer and it would take longer in that sense. We also see in Genesis chapter two, day six, I think day six. Notice all the things that take place in day six. There's no bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work on the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into the breath of the nostrils, the breath of life. The man became a living creature. The Lord God then planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then we have the rivers flowing 
uh, in and out of the garden. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So notice all the things that are happening in day six. Um, you have, there's no garden. There's no plant. There's no shrub in the garden of Eden, in that area of the land. God causes rain to happen. Then all the plants grow. God creates Adam, places Adam in the garden. Then uh, he puts him in the garden. He works the garden. He's keeping the garden. Then the Lord God commanded man saying, you shall surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of evil, you shall not eat for you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man would be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to man that he would call them. So Adam is now naming every beast of the field and every bird and every, uh, everything on, in, under the heavens. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper fit for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam. Then God created Eve. Adam wakes up and says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is huge, right? And that's true. Is at last, finally, oh my goodness, someone that can relate to me. Look at all the things that Adam did here. To say that there is nothing in the text that can suggest longer than 24 hours this is in the text and to me the plain reading suggests longer than 24 hours for plants to sprout up out of the ground for adam to take care of those plants to tend to the plants to name every single living creature on the face of the earth then to become sad and lonely because there's no one else like him and then to be shocked to go oh my goodness eve at last bone of my bones flesh of my flesh that suggests to me longer than 24 hours. And so I'm not saying that because 2 verse 4 is longer, therefore Genesis chapter 1 days have to be longer. I'm saying that Genesis 2 verse 4 allows for the possibility or a literal interpretation is a longer period of time. And therefore we read the text and see what the text says. I think at least day 3 and day 6 in the plain reading of the text do suggest longer than 24 hours. Could God have done it shorter? Absolutely. But then you have some sort of miraculous thing happening. I got no problem with miracles. Please hear me. I have no problem with miracles. The very act of creation was a miracle. But to suggest a miracle happened means that what normally takes place in that amount of time couldn't have happened. And so you need something unique to make it uh, be able to take place in that shorter amount of time. So I think those are two things within the text that do suggest that those days might also be interpreted as a longer period of time. So I brought this up and I said, look, this is a misrepresentation, misrepresentation of my view. I never argued what you say I argued. This is just not true. And so that was one kind of critique I had is that you're, you're misrepresenting me. And now all of your followers who don't know who I am, they're thinking something false about me. And, and this is where I think that kind of, uh, kind of comes to head in kind of a big problem as we kind of wrap up. Um, and, and not to be rude to Ryan Pauly or anybody like him, but I think it's because people just don't want to believe what God says. They just don't. People do not want to accept what the Bible says. They want to believe uh, long ages to be more acceptable to the world, or they want to believe, or they, or they just think that that's actually what happened. They're legitimately convinced of that. Um, I don't think that, I don't know whether Ryan Pauly is legitimately convinced of that. I presume he is, I would assume. This frustrated me uh, when I saw this. Um, not to be rude, but people just don't want to believe what God says. They don't. Now, he ends with saying, or they think this is what actually happened. 
And then he says, and I assume that's what Ryan Pauly thinks, which is true. I do think this is what actually happened. So then why say the first part? Why say the first part about it's possible? I don't want to believe what God says. I don't want to believe what scripture says. I do. I have given biblical scriptural reasons to support my view. I've quoted out of Hebrews. I Notice I have not brought up any science right now. No science. I'm looking at scripture saying, what does this word mean in different contexts, trying to address these issues because I want to understand what scripture says. And I think this is one of the problems that really does divide the church on this issue as well as other issues is when we assume the worst about someone. When someone disagrees with us theologically, we say, well, you don't want to believe scripture. Why not trust the best in them? They, they honestly want to believe scripture. They're trying their best to understand it. And they find something else persuasive. We can have conversations about that. But it is rude to say that someone doesn't want to believe what God says. And what's worse is to make that claim after misrepresenting someone's view, saying that they believe something that they don't believe, saying someone made an argument that they didn't make. It's a misrepresentation of them that then makes them look really bad as a God denier. Well, it's possible they think this is what actually happened. Yes, it is. So why say that negative thing? So I was straight up within his image and I, and I asked him, I said, look, I do have a problem with this part of the video in the sense that you misrepresent or didn't fully understand my argument at the beginning from Joshua 10. You misrepresent my point uh, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. That's not the argument I made. And then based on those misrepresentations and misunderstandings, you kind of make this claim that it's like, yeah, maybe he actually think this is what happened. But also there are other people just they just want to deny what God said. I said, this makes me look bad. And I said, like, do you think that your followers, your subscribers who don't know me are going to watch your video and come away thinking, when that Ryan Polly, he loves the Lord. He wants to do his best to understand scripture. Can you say yes to that? That I want to, that that's what your followers are going to get out of this. And his answer was no, I can't say that because you're wrong. Um, but that's also not what my view is. And so I did have a problem with this and I want to encourage you guys, don't do this. Assume the best. Now, I, I was very clear with him. I, and he said, do you think I'm lying about you? I said, no, 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 no. I don't think you're lying. I do think that you're honestly mistaken. I think you made an honest mistake, said I made an argument that I didn't make. I think it was just a slip. But to correct it and say, hey, everybody, by the way, this doesn't accurately represent the views. He didn't say this. You know, that might help. I don't know. You don't have to. Um, but that's, I think, the honest thing is that if we say something that someone said and that person didn't actually say it, it'd be like, oh, sorry, I apologize. Uh, I slipped up there. That's not what the person said. And so I kind of took issue a little bit with the fact that there's false information. I presented what this false information is, uh, and there was no kind of correction uh, that was made on that. Uh, there's no clarification. I just kind of addressed the other issues. Now, I wanted to spend more time on this. Oh, my goodness, 58 minutes. <sighs> Maybe I will just do this another time. Oh, my goodness. Because hmm. I feel like if I address this last part it's going to go too quick. All right, guys, because I, I do have to run. I can't go a little bit too long today. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. There is a little bit more in this video that I want to address. Um, I might be able to do this sometime next week. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Follow, connect, subscribe, uh, and stay on the lookout because there are a few more issues. The last part of the video that I do want to really address is, is why he does see this as a problem and why he's critiquing me on this. And it's that my view or the old earth view uh, opens up problems of death before the sin, that God called the world good when it was full of death, uh, that the curse of sin did nothing more than bring human death, which isn't true because Genesis says something differently. Also um, going into that this does damage to things like the atonement, doctrine of sin, why did Christ have to come and die, all that kind of stuff, our, our issues and why this matters so much to him, which I t completely understand.
And I think if someone is kind of critiquing and really slamming uh, scripture that is compromising core central doctrines, that person does need to be addressed. That person does need to be called out. The issue is I don't think that my argument actually does this. I don't think it actually addresses this. And so um, I, I want to address this. I don't have time today because I do have to run, but um, be on the lookout because this will be kind of an unplanned extra live stream that will address kind of these other points from the video and continue on. And by the way, in his image, if you saw this, I'd love your thoughts on this. And maybe you can join me for the next part to clarify anything that I said here. I hope I didn't misrepresent you. I hope I didn't misunderstand your points. Um, but I wanted to offer that response to the counter arguments like you asked for. And so I hope this kind of helps. And if you want to join me next time, I'd love to have you on and to kind of talk through and address some of those main points as well. Uh, in the live chat, I think there were some comments I didn't get to address. Kevin, thank you for being here. Eddie and Slam as well. And then uh, finally, the Blue Bunny, thanks for being here as well. Um, hope this was encouraging to you. Again, comment in, send in your questions, send in any thoughts you have here, and I'll address your thoughts that you maybe, or your pushback here, as well as the end of the video and the main points that I mentioned here uh, on a future live stream. So with that, if you've enjoyed this, please share it, please like it, subscribe. I would love to hang out with you guys and continue to work through these things with you. I hope this is interesting to you and uh, if you have enjoyed it again next week. Join me on Thursday. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Andy Bannister are going to be a fun conversation and I hope this helped. And again, there'll be a part two. Stay tuned for that. See you guys next time. Bye everybody. I just Guide my